Our reading today comes from Luke 18, verses 1 through 8. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respected man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Thanks, Eric, for that reading. Um, so, welcome. If you guys are wondering, um, you can turn your Bibles to Luke 18, verses 1 through 8. That's where we'll be. If you're curious why I'm standing here and not Jeremy or Chaz, um, probably not exactly what Chaz told you, but if you just read verse 1, it says, And he told them a parable to the effect they ought always to pray and not give up. That sounds simple enough. That's the point. It was easy enough that Jeremy and Chaz are taking the week off and leaving it to me, I think. Um, but it's interesting, I think, because it's easily the most simple teachings that confuse us the most, and it's the most easy teachings, the most simple thing to pray a lot and not give up, that can twist us and we lose our place. A few summers ago, I was working at a Christian sports camp. Um, this summer camp, what usually happens is we do a Bible study right before lunch. And with you guys having kids, I know teaching six-year-olds Bible study can be pretty difficult. Uh, so one of these days I was helping one of my friends and it was one of those tough days about halfway through and one of the kids slowly looks up to him and says, you're not very good at this. <laughs> and without missing a beat, my friend responds, I, I, I think you're right, do you wanna lead instead? And the kid says, yes. So he hands, my friend hands him a Bible with his notes and he begins to slowly for a minute just read this text and prepare. Uh, about a minute goes by and then this kid looks up, hands back the Bible and calmly says, I can't read. <laughs> and so immediately my friend takes over and the lesson continues. But I think so to, to bring this to us, I think these verses seem relatively straightforward. And so we hear them over and over, but sometimes our experience doesn't quite match up with what the verse says. That we should pray often without quitting and we expect to hear something, but there's silence. And so what we start doing, because we've heard it over and over again, and it's such a simple command that we start twisting the meaning a little. We take it a bit out of context we make it fit our desires and not what the text is actually saying. We, like the kid, think we know how to teach even though we can't read. There's a quote by two biblical scholars, uh, Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart, and they say, 
we're convinced that the single most serious problem that people face with the Bible is not with a lack of understanding. The problem is not understanding it, but obeying it. I think in these texts, when we're talking about praying without quitting, we often have twisted it enough that we don't actually apply it to ourselves and try. And I think we do that because we, we don't really understand why. We don't know the why of why we should pray without quitting. We don't know what the fruit and what the end game is. I think it's interesting that in verse 1, it's such a simple command, and then Jesus doesn't give us anything about how to pray. He doesn't say what to pray or how to pray or even what prayer looks like. He just invites us into the story of a widow. And I think in that story, we get three invitations, three fruits of prayer, and that that's enough and that that's what's to guide us and encourage us. So before we look at the parable and get back to these verses, let's first consider where we are in the narrative of Luke. Jesus and his disciples are winding their way through Samaria on the way to Jerusalem. This whole series that we've been on is like that. We know Jesus is heading towards his arrest, his death, his crucifixion on the cross, and his resurrection. But he's slowly taking his time through Samaria to get there. We're towards the end of the story now. We're just one chapter away from the Samaritan journey, this cross-cultural, boundary-shaking journey and when he reaches Jerusalem. So in this, Jesus isn't really giving us anything new as much as he's continuing to build on the foundation that we've heard from Jeremy and from Chaz this whole past few months. This is the second parable that we're getting on prayer in the Samaritan journey. The first parable is Luke 11, the Lord's Prayer. Uh, I'm not going to rehash Jeremy's sermon from that, but I want to remind us of that foundation of that parable that's going to influence and expect, influence and inform us in ours. In Luke 11, the parable, the main theme, the main thrust that Jeremy was pointing out is that prayer is inherently relational and conversational. And that this relational and conversational prayers with God who is both our friend and our father. And we can address him as we would address a close friend, a loving father. With that framework in mind, we enter into our parable. After starting by telling us the point of the parable and what we are to do in verse 1, we're expecting the answer of what we pray for. How do we pray and what do we pray for? And Jesus is putting it then. Jesus decides to immediately transport us into a story. Verses 2 and 3 in the parable are setting the setting and tone of the story, and they describe a town with a judge who neither feared God nor cared for what people thought. And there's a widow in that town who kept coming to him and saying, grant me justice against my adversary. The first thing we see in this parable, this first fruit, this first invitation that God gives us is to seek his justice. In verse 3, the widow, the, the words of the widow are, grant me justice against my adversary. This widow, as consistent with the culture of the ancient Near East, can do nothing to provide for herself. She can't get a job. She can't work. She's fully dependent on her family, her sons, or her extended family. And if they can't provide for her, then no one can. Today, 
I think that idea that we seek and depend on justice from someone like this widow was forced to is almost offensive to us. We're in such a culture where we want to do things of ourselves. We want to be responsible for ourselves, whether that's our own job, our own work, our own providing of ourselves, or even something as big as our own justice. We want us to be the deciding factor in that. You can even see it in the movies we watch and the superheroes we see. I mean, take, take Batman for an example. Batman is a character fully based on the idea that he has to take justice into his own hands because no one else can. Even in Marvel, this huge movies that are the, I guess, most profitable of all time now, one of the biggest storylines is these heroes decide that they cannot be held responsible and they can take justice into their own hands. That is what we aspire to. That's what we admire. That's what we want. We want to be able to define our own justice and to take it into our own hands. Yet, in this parable of prayer, the exemplar is not a superhero. It's not Batman or any other person you admire. It's a widow that's an exemplar of our faith. And what she asks for is the justice of someone else, not her justice. In these verses, we see that prayer, intimately related prayer, a prayer of conversation with God without losing heart, in some ways involves seeking God's justice and not ours. To put it another way, when we draw near to this relational God in prayer, we find an invitation to seek his justice. To adjust our frame of thinking to what God wants, to want what God wants. And it's interesting that this isn't portrayed as a command of this is what we need to do to pray. God isn't saying you need to want my justice to pray. He's inviting us to prayer and through prayer, then maybe that we can want the justice God wants. Maybe we can begin to shape and untwist our desires to want what God wants, to let God be God and let God's justice be good. As we continue to verses four and five in the parable, it reads, for a while he, referring to the judge, refused. But afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. We also live, we live in a world where we want our own justice, but we also live in a world where we want, where our image matters a lot. In fact, our image matters so much that if you're at a restaurant and you order food and you get the wrong food, a lot of us won't even correct the waiter or waitress and say this was wrong because we don't want to be a burden and we don't want to be looked at as difficult. Or maybe, maybe that's just me. Um, but in the core thing of that is we don't want the waiter or waitress to perceive how they see, change how they see us. I think that image-based theory really ties a lot into our prayer life with God as well. We don't want to come across as needy, incomplete, or imperfect to other people 
but we also don't want to come across as needy, incomplete, or imperfect to God. Because if we do, maybe God will be disappointed with us. Maybe we won't get an answer. Maybe we think we, won't, we don't deserve an answer anymore. Maybe all we hear is silence over and over again, and we think that God really doesn't like us. We're afraid that if we don't protect our image to God, and that he will, when he knows us fully, he'll find us wanting and we'll be embarrassed. But in this story that, as verse 1 said, is about prayer without quitting, we see a widow that's anything but hesitant. She's not worried about how she is perceived. In fact, her purpose is to make her neediness known. Not only is she asking for someone else's justice and depending on someone else's justice, but she's making her need for their justice fully known. She's making it abundantly clear that not only does she want their justice, but she needs it with everything. This widow is dependent on the justice of the judge, and she is unbothered by her presentation before him. But not only before him, but also to think of a widow that's begging for justice over and over to the point where the judge fears her, you have to imagine it also is affecting how other people see her that she's even being known to her community, the people around her, that her justice, that justice for her is necessary. In a sense, I would say that the widow isn't even worried about her humiliation, that the widow is willing to embarrass herself, herself to be known and to receive this justice. In many ways, I think throughout this story of Luke and the Samaritans, this willingness to be embarrassed is paralleled in the character of Christ. Before our parable, we have a story of what we call the prodigal son in Luke 15, where we see a father who willingly embarrasses himself for his son multiple times. A father that, whose son asks for his inheritance before this father is dead, and the father gladly gives it. A father that sees the son returning home as the prodigal and he runs through the streets and throws a, a celebration for him. And then we see the second brother disappointed and hurt. And the father comes to him on his knees begging, willingly humiliating himself both for the prodigal son but also the second son for them to return to him. We know where the story is going in Luke's gospel. It's the cross, the crucifixion, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Many scholars actually refer to this, that moment, the passion narrative as the coronation and humiliation. The place where Jesus is coronated as king through his humiliation by the people around him, by the powers around him. In many ways, the widow in the story is following this character of God, this willingness to humiliate herself for the purpose of God's justice, for this dependence on God. In the first three verses, we said the parable started by giving us an invitation to want God's justice, to want what God wants. In the second, in the second verses, where the widow in verses four and five are, is 
begging to the point of scaring the judge to give her justice, we see an invitation to be fully known by God. That through prayer and through prayer without quitting, without losing heart, we have an invitation to let God fully know us. This can be, these two questions are big, I think, and scary. I don't think I want to let God's justice stand. I'd rather decide for myself. I don't think I'd want to let God fully know me. I'd rather define myself in front of God. But these verses bring up the big question that we'll get to at the end of why. Why do we pray? Why should we let God define justice? Why should we let God know us fully? As we come to our last verses, it, verse starting in verse six, it reads, and will not God bring, and the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will, he will give justice to them speedily. And then Jesus concludes the parable saying, when the son of man comes, Will he find faith on earth? The first answer to the question of why, I think, is that we pray in part because we trust the character of God. As we've been going through this story through Samaria, where we see a God, Jesus, wandering through this culture that has been rejected by the people of Israel that seem to be their enemies, and he's breaking social barriers He's inviting conversation. He's eating with the sinners and the least of these. I think we believe that the God of the cross, who endured shame and humiliation for the redemption of humanity, who has dealt with injustice on the cross through his humiliation and continues to deal with justice today, is in some way worthy of our trust. That this Jesus of the Bible in the life that we've seen through these journeys, through his lack of hurry, through his love, is worthy of our trust. A Christ that has promised that he would sacrifice himself for our reconciliation to God is worthy of our trust. But that's not the only answer that's given, and I don't think that's all quite even the core and heart of this parable. We remember at the very end of the parable, Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? After this parable of the persistent widow, Jesus has one simple question. Will he find faith when he returns? And that's an interesting question to ask about a parable that we know is about prayer. How does this faith on earth relate to prayer and praying without quitting? I think it's interesting that when, if I were to ask us what, how would we define faith, the answer we typically get is a head answer. I believe this, I know this. We would give a doctrinal or a dogmatic statement about what we believe, about who God is. But that doesn't, that's not relevant to this parable or what Jesus is saying. The widow, Seeks his, just, 
seeks God's justice and knows him fully, and that's how Jesus seems to be defining faith here. Faith as a relationship, more than anything. There's a sociological idea made popular by Jim Rome, a motivational speaker, that claims that we are the average of the five people we see the most. This theory isn't proven or objective, but there are other research that support this, especially when it comes to our finances, uh, our eating and spending habits, and even our weight is affected by the people that we see the most and the people that we interact with the most or closest with. And I'm not about to say, pick your friends wisely. I don't think that's relevant. But I think it's interesting that if faith is a relationship, maybe the part of it of spending time with God is to be transformed into his image, to start to reflect his character, to start to reflect his justice, to start to want what he wants and to be known by him and come to know him more fully. We do not pray without quitting. As verse 1 says, so God answers our prayers like a genie. We pray without quitting, and the answer to the why is so we can be transformed into the image of God, into who God wants us to be. It is prayer, and prayer without quitting is the when and the where and the why and the how of life transformation, of becoming like Jesus, of being made into his image, into being who we were meant to be. In James chapter 1, verse 12, James, in talking about the one that perseveres, says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Then the natural question reading that is, what is the crown of life? And that takes us back all the way to the beginning of creation in Genesis 1, where God's first command to humanity is, be fruitful and multiply and rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky. Rule or have dominion, depending on your translation. But what God is calling this blessing of perseverance and prayer is the crown of life. It's the return to the original beginning of creation. And if we just keep going in that creation, what do we find? We find Jesus, or we find God walking with us in the cool of the garden of us fully dwelling with him, fully being known by him, and fully depending on him for food, for life, for joy. I think the point of this parable is not as much about pray without quitting in a series of commands, but because Jesus invites us into conversation with us, I, I think G Luke says pray without quitting because in doing so you're transformed into the image of God. That the end, the fruit, and the reward of prayer is simply being more like God, being who you were meant to be. I know that from Jeremy's influence you're probably expecting 20 more minutes, but <laughs> at as we begin to conclude, 
and we get closer and closer to the end of Jesus' journey through Samaria in our series, I think we begin to more fully realize the answer to why parables keep being used. We think of being a disciple of God as someone that believes in God and trusts in him, but Jesus instead keeps inviting us over and over again into a conversation. Even in this parable, even in a parable that Luke decides he needs to tell us what it's about at the very beginning. But I think what we find as we continue to go through the series as we get towards the end is that Jesus is not after disciples that believe in him, but Jesus is after disciples that are like him. Jesus wants his disciples to be people that do what he does, that want what he wants, that depend on him fully, that are fully known by him, and as a result know him more fully. I think we have a lot of barriers to prayer in our society today. We want to be good enough, smart enough, holy enough to even be able to enter into prayer, especially prayer without quitting, prayer that doesn't lose heart. But I think what we find in this parable is that it's not about that. Jesus is inviting us into prayer, and through prayer, we begin to grow in holiness. We begin to grow and want what God wants, to see the world how God sees it, to depend on God and let God be God and us be humans. Prayer is not only for the holy. Prayer is to become more holy. Prayer is to draw near to God and let him transform us. I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon that sometimes it's the simplest, most common verses that trip us up. There's a powerful quote by Jacob Rees, a former journalist, about persistence that says, when nothing seems to help, I go and look at a stone cutter hammering away at his rock, perhaps a hundred times without as much as a crack showing in it. Yet at the hundred and first blow it will split in two, and I know it was not that blow that did it, but all that had gone before. I think we read that inspirational quote, maybe it's inspirational to you, um, and we think and we associate that with our prayer life, that I just need to pray a hundred times over and over and over again, and the hundred and first time, God is the rock, is finally going to break. He's finally going to give me what I want. Prayer would finally be worth it that 101st time because it was my 101st time. Yet, I don't think that, as I said earlier, that's not what this parable is about. That's not what Jesus in Samaria is about. I think what happens actually is we go to Jesus in persistent prayer again and again in the 100, it feels like 100 times, maybe it's more, and then the 101st time, The rock splits in two and you realize that God isn't the rock and you're the stone cutter. But you realize that you've kept going over and over, but you were the rock that needed to be broken. You were the rock living less fully than who God made you to be and that God is actually the stone cutter through prayer, beating down and changing you, slowly molding you over and over again into who you were meant to be who God calls you to be. 
Perhaps the call to pray without quitting is one you've heard many times. And maybe it's hard to not view prayer as this persistent beatdown of God to get what you want. You ask for something over and over and over again, and you just wait for a response. But I'd encourage us to consider that, the, that prayer is not something we do to get something, but prayer is the meeting place between God and man. The when, the where, and the how of how we can become more like God a space where we can be known by God, where we can learn from God to want what he wants, to be like him, to want his justice and not ours, and to let him be God and not us. We pray without quitting to be transformed into the image of God. We pray with me? Lord, thank you that you are not the judge in this parable. Thank you that you're a good God that loves us and wants us more fully and fully. And thank you that you have sacrificed yourself, that you've willingly humiliated yourself for us, for the reconciliation of all of creation to you. Lord, I pray that as we lose hope, as we struggle with the silence, Lord, that may you be present, may you give us peace, and may you remind us that we seek you to be like you. And that our desires often don't match up with yours, but your desires, this wholeness that you offer is far better than what we could ever hope or dream. Make us more like you. In your name. <laughs>